take one of these if you're a woman and go to this. Take one of these if you're a man and go to this. So here's the deal. There's like tons of beer and pizza already ordered and prepaid, so you actually need to show up. Uh, even if you didn't sign up, show up, bring a friend. It's, they gave us, I think, the ballroom, so there's 200 seats. So there might be 100 guys ready to go, but there's room for another 100 from the highways and byways. Bring them in. 7.30 Friday at the Embassy Suites up by the Home Depot. Stop and buy yourself a power tool and then come on over. All right? So um, bring your friends. Complete. It's Arthur Just. It couldn't be less threatening. Uh, I mean, and also the women's thing, get going on that. This is one of the two Sundays, of course, we get to wear the pink. So uh, Lent 3, I'm sorry, Advent 3 and Lent 4. So, I mean, it's kind of a cool pastoral care move in the church where you have these seasons of waiting and then penitence where uh, actually somebody understood along the way. You don't want it to be too harsh. You don't want it to be too much. You don't want to think it's all about you. So you sort of, things sort of grow lighter over the time. So... It is the fourth Sunday, Latare, and, uh, you know, it was fun this morning. You who got up early, that was a very nice, that service felt like we want every service to feel, just so you know. There was just the right amount of everything going on, so that was very, very well done. That feel, kind of what happened this morning, I was surprised you could do it, actually, given the shorter sleep. Uh, that feel, that's, that's exactly where we're trying to go, so uh, hold on to that. All right, let's pray. O God, merciful and everlasting, you didn't spare your only Son, but you gave him up for us, that he, the true bread of life, might feed us and refresh us. So grant, we beg you, that we may receive him gladly and be strengthened in every peril and save forever with you. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, uh, questions about anything? Everybody good? Life's good? Keep going. Um, Get to the vicar if you can house a seminarian. Uh, you know, that's its own kind of deal. Um, so I'm giving you, the next couple of weeks, I'm going to give you stuff that comes directly from John Kleinig. In some ways, this is like reading a, a good book. I've heard him speak on this, you know, four or five times, so it's sort of in me. Although if there's anything that's um, sketchy, then that would be on me and not on John. Uh, he'll be back in the fall, so that will be nice. But I give you this stuff, and it's much like, in a way, reading a book about prayer, listening to a different perspective. Um, I've talked about this before in women's Bible study a year ago. However, uh, even when I read it myself, there was more stuff to learn. So I just thought I'd have a go with you. And you should have then, that's the reason you have his name on the top of the outline and then um, all the other things going on. So let's at least start with the, the, the passage in bold. I read you a little bit from John 14 and 15 last week. But, you know, this wonderful thing. One of the great things about the middle of John's gospel is where he says these genius things that come in a sentence, like, I've come that you might have joy and have it abundantly, or I've come that your, your joy might be full, or if you pray anything in my name, I'll give it to you. Whatever you pray in my name, that'll be yours. Or the piece that's here, which is, you're all my friends, which is just a remarkable way to think about God. Nobody in the ancient world thought about God as their friend. And even the most potent historical critics, when they look at the Lord's Prayer, the notion that Jesus would say, Father to the God of the universe is a thing that is stunning and therefore original for them. And of course, then if Jesus is your sibling, you too can say, you know, my father. You have this remarkable thing, and the Bible tries to tell you all about that in so many different ways. You know, sons and daughters, um, uh, sons and daughters, um, uh, you know, a royal priesthood, um, children of God, all these ways that you're talked about. 
uh, and then friends today. So if you just look at the bold piece that's halfway down, um, or you can spin your Bible open if you want, but Jesus says, you're my friends if you do what I bid you. You know, command has a little bit of, of this in it. Um, you know, Jesus' first impulse isn't this. I just thought, you know, the gospel for today sums up everything. The first thing we say in new members class is there's only one story in scripture. It's the resurrection story from death to life. And it was so fascinating in the gospel for today. Jesus delineates that so very clearly. There are people who are lost and then they're found. There are people who are dead and then they're alive. There's just one story in scripture. That's the story. And this too of, you know, there are people who are enemies, but Jesus wants to do everything he can to make them friends. You're my friends. If you do what I bid you, you know, um, I don't call you servants any longer because a servant doesn't know what the master is doing. But I've made known to you everything I've heard from my father. So the father talks to the son and the son talks to you. And that, of course, then goes with the whole bit on meditation that we did just previous. The son talks to you, and so you spend some time listening in meditation before you shape your prayers. You have to have something to say. You didn't choose me, I chose you, which is a remarkable bit of gospel. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and bear fruit. And then the question is going to be, you know, what does that fruit look like? I'm going to argue um, that one of the fruits is prayer. You, I appointed you to bear fruit, fruit that will last, that will be everlasting. The valuable things in life are everlasting so that my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name, which is a remarkable little statement. You can have whatever you ask if you can find it in the name of Jesus. So many people, you know, especially in Wheaton, there's so many people who sort of thump their Bibles but don't know their Bibles. Uh, it's, a, it's a remarkable thing. You can have whatever you can get out of the name of Jesus. If you can find a name, it's yours. So those are kind of the presuppositions. That's the text we'll work with. But let me um, back up just a little bit. And say, as I always do, and I think this has been helpful because it's um, every once in a while, you know, somebody gets kinked up and gives me a phone call, uh, but I fewer and fewer over the years. So um, I'm going to try to keep the distinctions between law, what God demands, and gospel, as God meets his own demands in Christ. I'm going to try to keep those clear for you. And also this connection, but distinction between justification and sanctification. So justification is being forgiven. And sanctification is living forgiven. You can't pull those two things apart. And sanctification lives from justification. But so often when Lutherans, you know, one of the great tragedies of Lutheranism, when you talk about good works, immediately somebody, you know, defaults to works righteousness. Uh, Take a big breath and relax. You know, that's not you. Luther talked all the time about good works and about the good that should be done in the world. And he never thought a minute that it was saving him when he did them. And yet he did them. So... Prayer turns out to be one of the great good works that you're all entitled to and actually that Jesus asks you to do. So start this way, um, that Jesus redeems us and he gives us all of his gifts. And so Lent is all about, you know, the cross is applied to you. It touches you. It fills you. It strengthens you. It guides you. So Jesus does everything on the cross. And he gives in the Eucharist, as the vicar said in the, in the sermon for the day, in the Eucharist, he holds nothing back. He gives you everything, even himself, body, blood, soul, divinity, all that he is, he gives to you. And with that touch, you're made holy. You were lost, now you're found. You were dead, now you're alive. You were an enemy, now you're a friend, okay? So prayer is an exploration, exploration of what it means to be a friend of Jesus, 
That's what this is. It's, a, it's an exploration of what it means to be his friend. More than that, and now this is where, you know, Lutherans can wince again, please don't. This is where we work together with Jesus. I mean, part of the fun of being a Christian is that Jesus trusts you with his work. We've talked about this from forever. When we had to sort out money things, we talked a ton. And we don't talk as much about that because it's pretty well sorted out. And if you haven't sorted it out, you just need to kind of catch up. When we talked about money things, you know, the, the great thing was that Jesus lets you play. You know, he gives you money. By the way, home ran the great experiment of putting money in the bulletins a few weeks ago. He's more popular than ever. Uh, there's one way to get people to love you in the church is to give them money. So, uh, you know, he ran the thing where he put, you know, ten singles in, and he, you know, he said, you know, take one and put it in the plate and keep the rest, and that's how the world works. And, of course, there are always people who have, it's a very simple thing, of course, but it, there's always people who sort of have that revelation that, ah, this is the way it works. It's so nice. So, you know, in the way that Jesus lets you talk to people, lets you love people, lets you give a witness to people, lets you be merciful towards people, gives you money to give to other people. Speaking of which, took me a while, didn't it? The basket to the um, Russians. They still need to buy a car, although their latest... I, I, I wonder, you know, we buy them cars on a regular basis and they send us those pictures with the big holes and the... And then you, I'm always sympathetic. There's a big hole in the road, of course. But then, yes, the latest... Uh, latest email came from uh, Pavel who said, I love to travel. I love the sound of the tires squealing on the pavement underneath me. <laughs> Don't send that to people you're trying. It's like your kid saying to you, you know. I mean, who hasn't said to their kid, wait till you buy your own tires. I'm going to write him back, wait till you buy your own tires. But nevertheless, you know, this can happen. There's, you know, nothing is different just because they're in Siberia. So, you know, you get to, you know, help the Russians. Uh, but, so they need $15,000 for a car and $10,000 for, um, for summer camp, by the way, uh, as they always do. So we'll have to, um, you know, we're going to have to belly up to that bar here pretty soon. But I'm just kind of let you, let you go. So anyway, so here's the deal. Jesus loves you. Jesus forgives you. Jesus gathers you in. And Jesus shares his work with you. Now, here's the problem with you and with me. Um, we go devilish so easily. And, you know, we, we, we think and act diabolically even when we don't know that we're thinking and acting that way. If you don't believe that, be a parent. You know, the great thing in Caponry says, you know, with our best works and our best intentions, we ruin our children. I mean, it's, it's true. You try to do your best, and, and, you know, sometimes the things you touch turn to ash. And we're, you know, given to self-interest, and we're still original sinners, and we still get lost. We bump off the rails. It's so easy to get it wrong. It's so easy. So here's the thing. If, if Jesus just gives us unmitigated power, we will destroy ourselves and everybody around us. Now I'm just going to give you a little hint toward where we're going, which means if every prayer of yours gets answered, we'll probably all be dead by this time next Sunday. Because we aren't divine, and divine power in our hands very easily goes badly. Strength in our hands very easily goes badly. So we have to be extraordinarily careful with that. Jesus' plan is to get all of you to work with him in delivering grace. Um, but it's very difficult for us to do supernatural work. Supernatural work takes supernatural energy. And, um, you know, it's just hard because we're sinful and we have a difficulty when power is given into our hands. 
So here's the thing. How can we um, have power in a way that we won't abuse it? So how can, how can we have the best of both worlds? How can Jesus say to you, I very much want you to work in the church. Here are some things for you to do, and you know so many of them. Feed the poor. Clothes to those who have no clothes. You know, um, be merciful to people who are in prison. What else can happen? Um, well, how can you how can you have exercise the divine power and not abuse it? Um, how can you use it? You know, don't use it in magic, the second commandment. Don't um, use it by being miserly, the seventh commandment. Don't promote yourself and destroy other people, the you know the fourth commandment, the sixth commandment, fifth commandment. You know, how can we how can we exercise divine power, divine virtue? How can we exercise that properly without hurting other people? You know, how can your dad give you the keys to the Ferrari and make sure that you'll come back in one piece? You know? Okay, that's the question. And one answer is prayer. Okay? And here's the here's the baseline assumption that prayer can only do good. Now this is one you'll have to work with a little bit. Because I, I took me a while to chew about this, but, but if you start with this assumption, prayer only does good. Um, in prayer, let me put it another way to you, in prayer you cannot do evil. You can only do good in prayer. And then let me just push in, this is Kleinig. Um, if an enemy of Christ tries to abuse prayer and use it, it does not destroy them. It turns them into a Christian. That's very interesting. So here's the thing. In another way, I'll say it to you this way. There's no downside and only upside in your prayers. Okay? Now, if you think about this for a moment, this makes sense because if you only get what's in the name, there are only good things inside the names, inside the name of Jesus. Call his name Jesus. He'll forgive sins. There's only, um, there's only good, good gifts inside that, starting with the forgiveness of sins. If you pray, oh, Jesus, you're only ever going to get what's inside that name. If you pray, O Christ, anointed one, Messiah, you're only going to get what's inside that name. Okay? Now, the interesting thing is there are you know, hundreds of names for Christ, so there's hundreds of gifts to follow. But you can't do evil in the name of Jesus. That's the baseline thing. You can't do evil in the name of Jesus. So you can't do evil with your prayers. And people who try to abuse prayer find out instead that they're changed. It's quite a remarkable thing. I don't expect you to take that on the first bite, but that is um, something for you to chew on and perhaps swallow. I am only one bullet point in on the outline. Okay? (laughs) So you still okay? Sort of with this? I'm going to presume that going forward, that prayer, in prayer you can do no wrong. Still good? You all right? All right, now the next bullet point. Um, You often, and Lutherans especially, um, love this text that we read every Christmas. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen nation, God's own people. You know, you are priests is how we often talk. Um, Lutherans love that for a range of proper reasons. Um, Because they're chief among them, because you're close and given duty to do. Now, what does a priest do? What's a priest do? What is a priest's job? Very simple. What does it do? He prays. Good. One of the things he does, what else? He does preach, although that's often given to um, prophets, although you do have priests who often teach. Pray. What else? Technically, what does a priest do? 
Make sacrifices, good. Make sacrifices and say prayers, right? So there is some preaching, there is some teaching, but technically a priest's primary job is to go to the altar, make sacrifices, and so when Paul says in Romans 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he's just telling you what you do as a priest. You, you say prayers, you say prayers, and you make sacrifices for other people. Oops, I gave you the answer there. Yes, thank you very much. And that's where I want to go next, which is you can bundle that up as somebody who intercedes, or, now I'm going to press your Lutheran sensibilities a little bit, the priest was a mediator. Now people often, again, this is a place where Lutherans get very, very nervous because they sometimes don't understand. And so the book of Hebrews will say, for example, there's one mediator between God and man. Mediator, big M, that in fact is true. I want you to at least entertain the possibility that because you are brothers and sisters of Christ or because you are a royal priesthood, God's own people, that you too might be mediators in the image of Jesus. Okay? Now, just press this, just, just kind of just think this through. Even if it rankles you, kind of go with this. If, it, if you're a mediator, what does a mediator do? What does a mediator do? He brings two sides together. Fantastic. That's exactly right. So a mediator is a bridge or a connection. Now press this ahead in your prayers. If you're a mediator, if you're a mediator, if you're a priest, if you take this seriously, what happens so often is people say we're a royal priesthood and then they give it their own, they give it their own definition of what they think that should mean that usually has to do with power, the misuse of power. That's what usually... That's not the way it's talked about. Royal priesthood is the way, just, just so you know, priesthood of all believers is not a biblical phrase. It also, I don't think, appears in our confessions. It's a phrase borrowed from another denomination. If you want to write a dissertation on that, go ahead. But we will defend royal priesthood because that's in you are priests. So priests mediate, which means they connect. So let me just ask you, what would that connection look like? Or how would you connect? Or whom would you connect? What do you say? Who are the two parties you're trying to connect? Yes, thank you very much. You're trying to connect. The Douglas Valley bought all the ringers today. Well done. It's really good. So the, 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 you're trying to connect sinners to Jesus. So that means you're bringing the gifts of God to sinners. Well done. It also means that you're bringing the cares of sinners back up to God. So you bring what God has down to sinners, and you bring what sinners have back up to God. Now, if that strikes you as odd, we do that several times every Sunday in the Mass. When do we do that? When? Anybody got an idea? In the prayers of the church. We do do it in the Eucharist as well. The Eucharist is correct. It is. It's not so obvious. The most obvious place is in the prayers of the church. So every week the vicar has to figure out how many prayers he's going to have. One, three, five, seven, nine. We always go on odds. I don't know why. It's the history of the church. There's always an odd number. One, three, five, seven, nine. When he gets to nine, he gets a bit burdened because the vicar, one of the things the vicars have to do is choose a name that's appropriate to what we're asking for. Have you ever noticed that? So at the sick we pray, O great physician, for example. Um, and I always listen to think, I always think to myself, now does that 
name that we're praying, does that fit with what we're going to ask? Can you pull the stuff out of that name? Okay. So every Sunday we do just this, and you all do it together. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. You're bringing the gifts of God. Oh, great physician. What's his gift? What's the gift in the great physician name? Healing. So you say, oh, great physician, you, who always care for us and remember those among us, even the weakest, we ask that you remember, and then we name people with their, which name do we use? That baptismal name, good, because that's the name they'll be known by in heaven. That's that you get your you get your last name at the hospital, your family name is at the hospital, your baptismal name is at the font. The Lord knows you by your baptismal name. So we name, it's not an announcement, it's it's attracting attention or specifying what we want. So you're a bridging person at that point. You say to God, your heavenly father, you say to Christ the great physician, Jesus, great physician. We know you've got healing, so pay attention to this person. You're bringing the gifts of God down to this person who, and then you sometimes know why they suffer and sometimes don't, and then you're saying because they've got this particular thing, and we sort of announce that back up to God. Later we'll talk about what God knows and what God doesn't know, but that's a ways down the road, okay? But just hold this notion initially that if you are a priest, then you are a bridge, If you are a priest, you're connecting Jesus and sinners. That's a genius way to say it because it's so simple and it's non-threatening to you. So in your prayers, you connect God to the sinner and the sinner back to God. You still with me? Is that okay? Here's the thing. You knew this already, but you have to think about it in a way um, that doesn't hurt anybody and doesn't threaten. Um, You are, or I should say, this is... um, your privilege. And in a way, it, is, it lets you in on God's decision-making. Okay, so now I'm through the second bullet point, I think. You still good? All right. At the third point, I want to take up this notion of Je- you being a friend of Jesus. And this was extraordinarily helpful for me in my own prayers to understand this. You've got to know a little history to understand this. Um, in the ancient world... I want to try to say two things. I hope I don't forget the second one because it's more fun. Um, but now I can't even remember what it was. Oh, yeah. The punchline is, you'll remind me to say, then it's not yours anymore. Hold on to that, okay, because I'm going to forget that part. In the ancient world, um, you had two classes of people who were in, uh, basically, in the royal court. or you, know, you had two classes of people who were, you know, who were in the castle. There were two classes of people who were in in the royal court. There were the normal people who were just servants, the, the courtiers. They were just, you know, people, they were people who did the work, swept things up, got the water, blah, blah, blah. But there were also, in those places, um, there, I'm sorry, there were, there were the ordinary servants who, who, who did those things. And then there were also the courtiers, the people who belonged, if you will, uh, in the palace and worked with the king. They would be, you know, roughly equivalent to um, cabinet members, for example, with the president in America. So there are all kinds of people who work in the White House. They come and go. They're interns. They do this. They do that. They don't really have any input into what goes on. But there are people who are in the inner circle. In the ancient world, they were treated almost as honorary family members. Uh, and they were, the title they got were, was, the title they got was Friends of the King. Isn't that interesting? Okay. 
So there's just everybody else. So if there's 100 people, you know, 90 of them are just tearing around doing work, but there are the 10 who are the friends of the king. So in John 14, the bit that we were reading, when Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, ordinary people. I no longer call you ordinary people. I call you my friends because you get to know what I'm doing. There is both a great honor and a great responsibility bestowed. And that's you as the baptized, as those in the church. You have become friends of the king. Does that make sense? And because you are friends of the king, you have access to God. And God will actually listen to you. Now, this is important. Not on principle, because God is very clear about what God means to do. God means to save every last person on earth. God means to have all his children home again. On principle, you don't get to contribute because the principle comes from the character of God. It is a revelation of the divine heart. But on strategy, absolutely. You know, the great example of that is Abraham, where um, Genesis 18-ish, the Lord says, Ooh, Sodom and Gomorrah is a mess. I'm about to go down there and level that place. And then he pauses for a second and he says, but I think I'll talk to Abraham. He lives in the neighborhood and he's my friend. So God knows what he needs to do or knows what he wants to do or knows what the proper thing is to do, but he does not do it without at least informing his friends who are in the area. And then, of course, Abraham feels free to say, hey, if there are only 50, 40, 30, 20 honorable people, could you spare the place? Could you see it in your heart to spare the place? You okay with that? So that's what it means. You you naturally have friends and enemies, and believe me, go home and read the thing from Scare ten times about your enemies, about God not having it's kind of tucked in near the gospel today in the bulletin. You know what? Scare's a crazy man, but he's a genius. I mean, in terms of what it means to be a Christian, that is you couldn't be, couldn't do better. I mean, that is a genius little quote that's in the bulletin today. Jesus takes you as his friend. He's already done what he needs to do. He's gone to the cross and he's forgiven the whole world, John 3.16. Loves everybody. Wants all his children home again to come to Eden. But he includes you and he not only asks you to do particular things, he lets you ask him or even bump and nudge, suggest, beg for what you might want. Pause. You still okay? I just want to tell you one other thing that I found to be extraordinarily helpful. It's the sort of thing you should learn when you're 12, and you know, if you don't learn it till you're 50, your life is poorer for it. So I'll just tell you this. Um, in the ancient world, this is something that I did not know, uh, but as soon as, it was, as soon as John told me this, I made complete sense and you know, changed kind of how I think about things. Um, in the ancient world, when you went to the king, when you appealed to the king, and the king agreed to hear you, so you've been grieved by somebody, you know, somebody has stolen your, or burned down your, or killed, you know, when something has happened to you and you need something and you went to the king, it took a bit to get before the king. But if the king agreed to hear your case, a very interesting thing happened. The king would take it as his own and you were no longer allowed to appeal, give advice, or question. Isn't this very interesting? Think about your own prayers now. When you come near, so you've got you know, your kid you know, your kid's wife or husband, your job, pick something, 
you know, the trouble, your mom is sick, your dad is... You're, when you get before the king and you tell him what you want, you pull it out of the name, this is what I want, when he receives that, it, is, it no longer belongs to you. Okay? Now you can remind him, you can make note that you're still interested, but once, you, once he receives that, it no longer belongs to you. What does that actually mean? Practically speaking, what does that mean about your prayers? What? They will get answered. So they will get answered. So hold on to that, okay? What else does that mean about your prayers? Sorry? You don't own it anymore. It will get answered. What else? Yes, you're wholly unburdened by that. And this, I just tell you, you know, the thing from St. Bernard of Clairvaux, which I, you know, one of the, if I could, t- if, I, if you could remember ten things in your whole life, this is one to remember. When you pray, God gives you what you ask or something better. So you'll get an answer. It may not be the one you want. When you pray, God gives you what you ask or something better, right? You might have heard this, um, you know, this horrible story where these, um, this hit and run in New York that killed this young Jewish couple and the woman was pregnant. You heard that and the child was delivered and all that. Did you, did you hear what the Orthodox, I mean, it's very interesting to hear the radio clip. The single radio clip I heard played was um, some of the Hasidim, one of them says, this is God's will, we can say no other. Now, when you're young and people say that, you think that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And you think that because you think you're free, you think that God's unfair, you have plans, you have vision, you have things you think about. When you're older and you embrace, God will give you what you ask or something better. There is something in that comment that embraces the God of Abraham who is always for you and never against you. Okay? That sort of a thing can begin to make sense. This is God's will, we can say no other. I mean, it is what Job, of course, says. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is God's will. We can do no other. That is not a response that comes easily to us, and it is dangerous if it is a first or an unconsidered response. But down the way, if you understand yourself to be a priest, if you understand yourself to be in God's court, if you understand that God is listening to you, if you understand that that's not a vocus exercise that God actually intends to work back and forth with you as two persons uh, work with each other. So one of the great you know, things to learn from Calvin, what changes in God and what doesn't change in God. What doesn't change in God is his will to save all people. What does change is the strategy by which that is gets done. And you all get to participate in that as parts of the royal priesthood, right? As, as, as family as people in the royal court. Does that make sense? It's a remarkable thing, and unburdened is the, maybe the chief payoff about that. Um, the danger, of course, is that you want to go back and get it because you think you might be able to do a better job. You know, a little like the prodigal son thought he could do a better job with the inheritance and the old man. <laughs> think about that, okay? You still okay? Questions about any of that? Yes, please. Actually, I do have a question. Yeah. I'm thinking now about that couple that got killed by the the trigger driving the drunk or 
Right. So life belongs to God. So it's very well said. Life belongs to God. And thou shalt not kill simply says, life doesn't belong to you. Life belongs to God. You don't make decisions of life and death. God makes decisions of life and death. However, as you know, in a free world, people do all kinds of crazy, stupid... Didn't your daughter buy a motorcycle? Yes, she did. Yes. She's such a nice girl. You know, she'll probably be the most careful motorcycle driver ever, but it was still, you know, you know. So, yes, and people are free, you see, and we're free to do as we wish. If you're not free, you're not human. I mean, part of, part of being human is to be free. And theologies that take freedom away from us um, don't recognize what the image of God was and what was given to us as we were created as a particular thing. Okay? So, these are difficult things. Um, you'll find, you know, the longer you're at it, the more you find out that the edges aren't sharp. People, you know, it's very easy to give kind of, it's, it's, it's easy to sit at your desk and um, do theology. It's very difficult to do theology at a bedside or a funeral. That's much more difficult. Or at a jail or pick someplace, okay? But you have to hold on to these basic things. Um, and always remember that God is good with children and he loves your children more than you do. Um, you still okay? So here's the thing. This is unique, as I said before. This is unique to Christian prayer. That you would, I mean, this is, I mean, this is all Third Commandment stuff, too. What's unique, of course, in the Third Commandment? You know I've said this to you a thousand times. What's unique in the Third Commandment is on the Sabbath, you don't serve God, God serves you. That makes you different. That makes Christianity different than every other religion. Every other natural religion is defined by people who need to do something for God. The Sabbath is the craziest thing. You rest, and the creator of heaven and earth cares for you. Okay? So you have this remarkable relationship where he cares for you, and he listens to you, and he gives you work to do, but it's actually his work, um, and he'll control it, but you remain his friends, and, and this is the important thing, if you think Abraham, the world is blessed through you. And I'm going 100 miles an hour in my head, okay? So I just want to, I want to pause and just say where we've been, okay? Christ does his work on the cross. He is for the life of the world, as he says. He wants all his children home again, and he lets you play. He lets you give those gifts. Those gifts are given in the Eucharist. Those gifts are given in absolution. Another of the gifts that given is the gift of prayer, and that is given to all of you as mediators, as priests. It does not depend on you. It is a gift given, but he begs you to exercise it. Jesus begs you to pray. He begs you to tell him what's on your mind. He begs you to give his gifts to other sinners. He begs you to bring what you've got before him so that he can take care of it. Does that make sense? You just can't. I mean, this is just such a remarkable thing. Um, And you see this um, in Abraham, for example, where he administers God's power not, uh, or or he, he, he administers God's way not in power, but in blessing and in gift. So you always know as you do, and you're clever enough to know this, nothing good happens by force or the gospel never works by force. So if you think you pray with force and your prayers are not answered, 
um, or answered in the way that you think they should be answered, you know, it doesn't work by force. It's under the gospel. It works by plea. It works by insistence. It works by cajoling. It works by, can't you see this? It works by name primarily, but it does not work by force. And that protects it then from um, abuse. You still okay? Everybody all right? I've got to see where I am on this outline. I start flying away. Um, I am one, two, three, four. I am um, I'm about five or six bullet points down, something like that, in there somewhere. Um, when Jesus makes you a friend, then uh, you know you can sum up by saying, when Jesus makes you a friend, what he does is make you a coworker. He's a mediator, big M, you're a mediator, small M. And each one of you then has a responsibility that nobody else has. Um, it's 17, 18 till. Uh, another thing, you know, I got, another, it's good to have smart friends. Um, another thing, uh, and you can, we'll start here next week, but in the, in the catechism, you know, among the sadnesses are people who mistranslate. And then you have a vicar who can translate anything. Did you know your vicar was in Germany last year? And it, it, well, I mean, what a thing. So, um, you know, the great thing you say to the vicar, even on a morning when he's, like, busy and has to make copies and has to preach, and that's a certain stress on a young guy, you can say, hey, could you just translate that for me really quickly before we go out? Which he did, so I'm grateful, because <laughs> I wanted to double-check something. Um, you probably know the catechism is the table of duties. And, of course, when you hear the table of duties, what do you hear? How unfortunate that is. <laughs> Uh, because in here, like, what did we decide this? Where is he? What did we decide? Did he leave? What did we decide this said this morning? This said, table, uh, it says, this says orders and stations, which are very, very different um, than duties. And here's the problem. Um, so I'll give you this to think about for next week. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be this way, but you can think about you can think about um, this. And nobody talks this way. Lutherans, so no, here's another cranky thing. When Lutherans talk inside baseball and they don't tell you what they mean. So for the last 10, 15 years, there's been all this talk about vocation. But you can't really find people who can tell you what vocation means. Okay, here it is really simple. Um, Luther says there's, there's three orders. There's three orders in the world. There's family. Um, there is um, government. And there is church. Okay. So you can basically break the whole world down into those three things. And then he says, um, below that, there are things called stations, spots, right? There are stations. That's the spot where you're put. So, for example, for me, in my family, I have a couple of things. I am husband. That's one of my spots. And I'm father. That's another one of my spots. I also, another one of my spots in the church is, um, I'm pastor. Your spot would be priest. Okay. So basically, what we're talking about is where your spot is, and then um, I'm going to just do this, and then we'll come back to this next week. Then, only then, when you understand that, can you talk about vocation? And vocation is basically the work you're supposed to do, right? So, as a father, I have particular work I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to support my kids. I'm supposed to. Um, you know, discipline my kids. Same with you. One of the things that you have as a vocation now is to pray. And you see how gospelly this is as opposed to, 
you know, you hate confirmation, you have to memorize the table of duties too. And if you read it, it, when it says table of duties, and then it just says for pastors, for bishops, for parents, suddenly, and then they quote you some that that seems very law-minded because it hasn't been explained to you that this is the gift that God gives you. If God gives you the gift of children, for example, he also gives you the gift of praying for your children. Okay? So this is what we're going to pick up next week. But if you can start to think about um, the orders, let those be fixed. Don't try to add or take away. Whether it's complete or not, let's not worry about that so much because that you can always think about things. But think about what your stations are. Everybody has a station. What are the spots you fill? Right? And then when you fill some spots, what are the things that you're supposed to be doing in each of those spots? The one we've talked about primarily this morning is all of you are priests or all of you are mediators. And because you're a priest or a mediator, among the things that you do are act as a bridge to others. You bring Jesus to sinners, sinners to Jesus, and one of the ways you do that is to pray. Okay, So suddenly prayer doesn't become this great burden you have. It's this great gospel thing where it's you and Jesus together getting it done. I know that's the way Lutherans normally talk when they want to bash on works righteousness, but we're not talking about justification. We're talking about sanctification. And you talk very much about you and Jesus getting the work done empowered by the Holy Spirit, and you never run by your own steam, and the only reason you can do it is because Jesus invites you and the Holy Spirit does it. It's their work, and if it's screwed up, then it's your work, but if it's good, it's their work, okay? (laughs) So God gets all the credit, and you get all the blame, but nevertheless, you're still co-workers, okay? More next week. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks. See you.